You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 175. This is our final episode about the military conflict at the front before we shift gears next episode to discuss the events around the armistice. This is something of a milestone because it will be the last episode for the foreseeable future that will focus solely on military events, or at least the last about the military events of what is traditionally considered the First World War, which would end on November 11th. After this episode, we will spend some time discussing the armistice, how it came about, why it happened, and how it was implemented. Then we will have a few episodes about the Spanish flu, which would sweep the world in the months and years after the war. Then we will take a serious deep dive into the incredibly confusing and incredibly long story of Versailles. But before we get there and before our story becomes one of politicians in dusty rooms, the armies of the Western Front had one final very large spasm of action in the last six weeks of the war. During this time, the Allied General Offensive of late September and early October would continue. The Germans would continue to try and find a way, any way, to slow them down. A solution to the problem would never be found, and instead the German army would instead begin to crack at the seams, and the military leadership would find itself under new management. Eventually, the army would be one of the primary drivers and supporters of the armistice discussions. Before we get to those last actions, though, we begin with two somewhat random topics. The first is about Allied usage of tanks during these late war offensives, and the second is a bit of detail about what one specific Australian battalion did during this fighting. I know we don't dive into extreme detail very often, but looking at the actions of one unit during the 100 days allows us to make some good comparisons to earlier in the war. We will then close out this episode with discussions of the last Allied offensives of the war and the German reactions to it. We have not really discussed the usage of tanks in 1918 very much. The Germans did not use many in their offensives earlier in the war, but the French and British had been refining both the tanks themselves and how they used them since 1916. By 1918, they had been created in large numbers, with the British manufacturing 1,200 of their heavy tanks during the year. 
These tanks would see heavy usage during the early part of the 100 days, especially at and immediately after Amiens. However, they would once again prove that they were still not capable of maintaining any real combat effectiveness during a long campaign. The biggest problem was still one of maintenance and reliability. This would prevent the British from being able to mass large numbers of tanks over the long term, since they were either breaking down or destroyed by enemy action faster than they could be manufactured. They had greatly increased the reliability of the Mark V series of tanks, but greatly increasing the reliability was not really saying much, given the fact that previous reliability was so abysmal. When this limited reliability was combined with the fact that the pace of action between August and November was basically a non-stop offensive, the number of tanks available to the army would rapidly decline. This did not mean that the tanks were not involved. Basically from Amiens to the end of the war, with a two-week break in September when they were pulled off the line for maintenance, tanks were involved in some way in every major British and French action. The big difference at this point was it wasn't an attack of tanks. It was an attack that tanks happened to be involved in. That's just sort of the role that tanks were playing at this point. They almost had to be involved, since they were such a critical piece of the British and French offensive doctrine at this point, and so they've just sort of moved to the background of our story. There's pretty much always tanks there, but they're in small numbers and they're doing their own thing. This next section of our episode comes to you courtesy of Dr. William Westerman, and his article The Real Controller of the Battle, The Importance of Studying Tactical Battalion Command, a Case Study, which I found in the Journal of Military History. Just real fast here, if you like this podcast and you like military history in general, I highly recommend heading over to smh-hq.org and checking out the Journal of Military History. For $70 a year, you can become a member, which gets you a physical copy of the four volumes of the journal that come out every year, but more importantly, gets you digital access to the entire back catalog of articles. These reach back decades, they cover all kinds of topics, a lot of them are great. Also, they're not paying me to say this, I generally like what I get by being a member there. So anyway, smh-hq.org, check it out. Anyway, back to our story. In this article, Westerman looks at the 22nd Australian Infantry Battalion and its actions during the last 96 days of the war, from, October, from August 8th to November 11th. He follows this battalion through this phase of war as they try to chase the Germans in, in their retreat and then through their attacks on the Hindenburg Line and beyond. I found a few things really interesting about the information that he discussed. The first was a breakdown of what exactly the battalion did during this time. During these 96 days, the battalion would spend 5 fighting, 7 holding the line, 3 in support, 15 moving around, 18 resting, and then 47 days training. The number that really stands out to me here is the training number. I would have expected that number to be much smaller at this point in the war. But training was still important, especially since the Australians found themselves in a very different type of war in 1918. Gone were the fixed positional battles that had been the norm from 1915 to 1917. The Australian troops had mostly been trained and had gotten their first combat experience during this time, and the shift to more open battlefields meant moving away from everything that they had learned up to that point. This was especially important for the officers, who needed new training in the realities of the battlefield in 1918, which was evolving all the time. Another interesting piece of Westerman's work is his description of how the battalion and its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Wiltshire, interacted with the artillery during this point in time. 
Up to this point when we've discussed artillery during the war, we have talked about this like rigid schedule and the lack of communication between the units and the guns and how this was a serious problem. In most cases during the last few months of the war, the situation was the exact opposite for the Australians. During this time of more fluid movements, each battalion commander was in direct contact with a dedicated set of artillery batteries that he could use to provide fire support where and when he needed. There was also significant flexibility for the officers when it came time to actually execute attacks. They were generally informed about the objectives that were in front of them, and then what support they had, and the rest was left up to them. This autonomy is interesting because it was moving the structure of the armies back to how they were envisioned before the war even started, with unit commanders being given flexibility and freedom to do what they needed to do. When the war started, this was all forgotten, as massed infantry attacks and set-piece battles became the preferred method, but here at the end, everything had come full circle. Gone were the days of long lines of men on the Somme, advancing at a specific pace at exacting times. Flexibility had returned to the battlefield. As the fighting entered its last four weeks, the German army was wrecked. Since mid-July, they'd suffered 800,000 casualties, just on the top of the almost 1 million that they'd suffered from March to July. Divisions were skeletons of their former selves, with many down to under 1,000 men. They were heavily outnumbered in men, and in other areas things were even worse, with the Allied superiority in artillery and aircraft becoming unanswerable by this point by the Germans. During the summer, there were several small-scale mutinies within German units, often when they were preparing to move up to the front, but this would just be the beginning. With their peace note that was sent to Wilson on October 3rd, the leadership of Germany was already beginning to consider an end to the war, but that did not mean that the army could stop fighting, instead the fighting had to continue until the very end, but could the army sustain it? There had been a slight bump in morale when the Allies had attacked in August, with the move to the defensive bringing back something within the German soldiers, but this rise did not last long, and soon morale cratered once again. Desertion also began to rise, and while this was not to reach huge numbers early on, it would continue to rise for the rest of the war. One of the narratives that would rise in prominence after the war was that the German army, and especially its soldiers, just sort of melted away and gave up during this period of conflict. From a desertion perspective, while the numbers were high, it was not like the entire army would just give up. The number of Germans surrendering was high, that was true. Over the course of the entire war, about 715,000 German soldiers were captured by the Allies, and of that number, about half came in these final months of the war. This was a statistically significant increase in the number of surrenders, and officers behind the front searched for some reason for why it was happening, and maybe a way to stop it? That'd be nice. One possible answer was the German soldiers that had been captured by the Russians and had only recently returned after the Russians had exited the war. There was concern that these soldiers had been influenced by the Bolsheviks and were spreading that influence to other German troops both behind and at the front. This had been a serious problem for the Austrians when their prisoners returned, but in Germany it probably had a negligible effect, at least on the army at the front. Uh, there's a whole different thing about the home front. Speaking of troops at the front and elsewhere, often morale issues in one area of the army had a way of filtering out to the others, and nowhere was this more true than in the training camps back home. 
Word of the situation at the front, in that many troops at the front had completely given up the idea of winning the war by September 1918, found its way back to the camps where new soldiers learned of it, which created this kind of compounding depression of morale, where troops would feel the effects of these negative feelings before they even reached the front. This was a worrying trend, but the most concerning situation was that the officers at the front weren't doing much to keep morale up. One soldier in the 6th Army would write in a letter home that, quote, Our officers have also had enough. They're not allowed to say it openly, but now and again, they let it be known. This would create the most concerning structural problem for the German army in the last weeks of the war. Having a few enlisted men surrender or desert here and there was a problem, but a manageable one. Having officers get involved with these surrenders was something very different. The belief in the German units was that if an officer organized a surrender, then there was a much greater chance that the enemy would recognize the surrender instead of killing them. There was never widespread reports of Allied soldiers killing a bunch of Germans who were trying to surrender, but it's true that it was probably easier to organize a surrender when officers were involved. These type of actions were not typical, but they certainly happened. There is one story of a German officer who crawled across no man's land late in the war and surrendered himself to the British. His one request after he surrendered was that he be allowed to return to his lines to bring his men over as well, a request which was of course granted. These types of stories are probably the best example of poor morale that I can give. Once the officers in an army started completely losing faith, it's hard to keep the army together. Not every officer had given up, and many were still fighting with their men, and they would continue fighting until the very end. But not all of them would. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. In early October, the Allied commanders once again met to decide their next course of action. They all knew that there would be more attacks. The only question was when, where, and by whom. 
There had been an overall slowing of the Allied advances during the first days of October, as each of the previous attacks had begun in late September and they had now reached their limits. In Flanders, they were stopped as much by the weather as by German resistance. In the Meuse-Argonne, the Americans were just not doing very well. In other attacks, they were supply problems that were beginning to slow down the troops. The goal was to make sure that these efforts were restarted and continued in mid-October. Haig was on board with this plan 100%. He believed that the German army was basically beaten and that attacks would run into little resistance as they advanced. Foch agreed with his assessment, and on October 10th, he would order a new set of three attacks. In Flanders, the Allies would drive forward from their gains around Passchendaele, with their objective to push towards Ghent. The British would also attack towards Maubourge uh, from their positions around Cambrai, and the French and Americans would continue to the attack in the Meuse-Argonne, with their objective of, well, getting anywhere in the Meuse-Argonne. In the Meuse-Argonne, the Americans had paused their offensive in early October, after having so many problems during the first week of their efforts. This allowed the Germans to also recover, and so when the attacks restarted, they initially experienced little success. This greatly frustrated the other Allied leaders, with Clemenceau apparently being furious at Foch for not taking the Americans in hand and pushing them a bit harder. It would not be until October 14th that real progress would begin to be made. It was on that day and the days after that as other attacks began elsewhere along the front that the Americans would really start to push through the German defenses. Even this did not raise the evaluation of the other Allied leaders. They were still convinced that the Americans had completely botched the situation. They had massive numbers of men, they had been facing what could not have possibly been the best German troops, and still it took them weeks to accomplish anything. It was not a good look. Elsewhere on the front, things were going much better for the Allies. In Flanders, when the attacks began on October 14th, they found that the German troops almost melted away in front of them, with no small number surrendering to the advancing Allies. This resulted in an attack that advanced faster than anyone had expected. With resistance completely falling apart on this sector of the front, the German troops to the north uh, began to become very concerned that they were going to be cut off, and so they requested that they be allowed to retreat. At this point, these troops were the furthest into Allied territory of any German troops, and more importantly, to their north was the North Sea, and to their south was the growing Allied salient in Flanders. If they did not begin moving soon, it's likely that they would be cut off. Because of this, on the 15th, Ludendorff authorized them to begin a general retreat. This retreat allowed the Allies to push along the coast, overrunning the ports of Austin, Zeebrugge, and Bruges, and all the U-boats there were moved back to Germany. This finally put the German U-boats out of action, at least on the Channel ports, a goal for the British since mid to early 1917. To the south around Cambrai, the British, with a bit of American help, would attack on the 17th, and over the next week they would push forward. All along these attacks, the Germans were pushed out of defensive position after defensive position. Things were going very well for the Allied armies, and for the French, this was something of a blessing. Up to this point, the Western Front, or at least the active portion of the front between the Meuse and the sea, had been a giant bulge that had pushed out into French territory. Now, with the Allies advancing, this bulge began to shrink. The French armies that were in the middle allowed their portion of the front to shrink precipitously. Over the 100 days, the area of the front that would be manned by the French shrank from 150 miles to just 42. This allowed them to remove three entire French armies from the line. Some were shifted to other parts of the front, others were just allowed a rest. This was a boon for the manpower-strapped French. The Germans had no such break from the fighting. 
But even with such a grim situation in late October, there was still hope at German command that they could hold the new Hermann Lime positions that had been created behind the front. These had begun construction earlier in the year as a backup for the Hindenburg line, but they were far less impressive and far weaker than those Hindenburg positions. There simply was not enough time or manpower to build them up to that level. As the Hindenburg positions were taken, the Hermann line was still not complete, and there began to be concerns that they could not be held for more than a few weeks. On October 26th, with the German army in crisis, Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and the Kaiser met at army headquarters. Ludendorff, given the position of the army and the disposition of the Kaiser, offered his resignation, and it was accepted. Ludendorff's reign as quartermaster general was over. When news of his removal reached the home front, there was general happiness. In fact, the situation was so dangerous for him in Germany that he would be forced to leave the country, and he would spend the next few years in Sweden. On the 27th, the German government would send another note to President Wilson. This note pushed the situation further, and its verbiage bordered on complete capitulation, stating, quote, that they looked forward to proposals for an armistice that would usher in a peace of justice as outlined by the president. There's a lot of political developments that happen in October for the Germans, and that's going to be a big focus of our next episode and our next three episodes, I guess, uh, about the armistice. So stay tuned for more information on that. Even with the Germans possibly looking for peace terms, the Allied military leadership were determined not to slow down their attacks while they waited for an armistice to take into effect. In the last days of October and early November, their next set of attacks would begin. The troops in Flanders would once again advance, this time all the way to the River Scheldt. In the south, the Canadians would push forward and capture the city of Valsine, which was important if only because it was the last large French town that was under German control. On November 1st, the American and French troops in the Meuse-Argonne finally broke through and were advancing. The Hermann Line would fall apart almost instantly, and the Germans were forced to move their troops back to the Antwerp-Meuse Line, but they knew that these would not last very long either. Foch and the French were already preparing for their next set of attacks. These would be in the south, in Lorraine, an area of the front that had not seen large actions in years. Here they would use some of those troops freed up by the shrinking front to launch an attack towards Morong, where some of the very first fighting on the western front had occurred way back in 1914. This attack would have begun on November 14th, but it would never happen. While the military situation at the front was a disaster, for the Germans that disaster was also beginning to take root back home. On October 22nd, Admiral Hipper tried to start Operation Plan 19, which was essentially a suicidal naval mission where the German high seas fleet would sortie out of their bases and seek to engage the British fleet wherever they found them. As soon as the sailors found out about this plan, they mutinied and raised the red flag of revolution. They were joined in this revolt by the army units within Kiel. Germany, like Russia before it, was on the brink of revolution. The war had to end, and it had to end quickly if the German state was going to survive. That will be our story next episode, as we look at how and why the armistice was finally going to happen. The war would be over soon, and then everyone would have to figure out what they were going to do afterwards.